navigating nutritional support in an ADHD life with uh, Professor James Greenblatt. That is today's show. Welcome to the Low Tox Life Podcast. I'm Alex Stewart, your host, and today is show 319, Uh, and I have something to share. I have ADHD. Uh, This is not where I want to talk about it in the entirety of my experience, but suffice it to say, uh, just for context, I guess, because I do mention it a couple of times in the show, uh, it retrospectively uh, is a very, very obvious thing for me and all of the people who love me or have taught me or have tried to be my boss over my lifetime. Uh, But it has been an incredibly interesting time uh, as many diagnoses uh, come about. It was born out of crisis. We rescued a teenaged non-desexed male golden retriever who was 38 kilos of joy last August and it literally caused me to completely break down. I developed depression. I had never had an experience of depression. I developed full body arthritic pain uh, and uh, I could not believe that my life had been so negatively impacted by getting such a gorgeous doggy, especially when my husband and son were so excited. And as I started to unpack it, it all came down to me getting work done and showing up for you guys and uh, producing resources and spending time on socials, something that I'm finally getting back into doing more regularly. But in the three months that we had him, I don't do doing things badly. I cannot. Uh, As it turns out, perfection is a part of the ADHD picture. But So I became a brilliant dog mum and then uh, my work suffered and then I realised that I would dawdle most work days, in fact, my entire work life and have this hyper-productive time, usually towards the 4 till 5 p.m. mark, uh, where I would get work that would take most people a day to get done. I would be able to get it done in an hour. But unless I had had the dawdling, farting around time, Uh, that led to the complete panic of not getting anything done, that led to the hyper-focus, I I wouldn't be able to motivate myself to uh, tick everything off my list. And what was really interesting about getting Buddy was he was a pretty docile boy after the big morning adventure that he has with my husband every morning in the dog park and with all his mates and running around and swimming and like he's exhausted. So the morning he would be lying there, uh, sleeping, dozing, changing positions, coming for a little pat, nothing hectic. But as the afternoon crept on, he would want to do more and more. He would want to play totally natural dog stuff, right? But that was where my hyper-focus hour had traditionally been. And so that was what caused me to all of a sudden not be getting anything done at all, uh, which then set off the chain of mental health events, which then uh, forced me to basically have a look at something that I had suspected uh, for a couple of years, actually since losing my EA during COVID times and not having that executive function ninja uh, executing on all the little bits of admin uh, and... Uh, and then the dog thing, and and so uh, the diagnosis was born. But we know a diagnosis is also, in reality, a collection of symptoms, and some of those symptoms can be worked on nutritionally. Some of them can be worked on with various therapies. Uh, sometimes medication is in order, and you guys have heard me say this on the show. I am all for and support anyone who chooses the medication road while looking into other things or perhaps as an SOS to just get in the space you need to be in right now 
as well as then working on your long game in a more holistic way. There is no right and wrong. There is never any judgment for where people are at and what they need to do in the now uh, and into the future. And so I was interested to explore what uh, certain more progressive clinicians were doing in the ADHD space because I was quite confronted by my own diagnostic experience where the follow-up meeting um, after doing my IQ test, which, by the way, was really good, uh, and then having the psychologist uh, assessments and reports done, uh, which showed that I had a combined type, for those of you in the ADHD community out there, um, interested. And uh, I arrive in the waiting room, and in the waiting room waiting for me, is a whole bunch of documentation on the side effects of all the medication. And uh, like I said, I'm not opposed to medication. In fact, I've been even trialing uh, various uh, stimulants to see whether that might be something that I could keep in store for when I might really need it on a big admin day where I struggle and can't and feel overwhelmed um, or... For whatever other reason, I won't let myself be judged either as I explore this new territory. Um, and, uh, and I was confronted by the fact that it was such a narrow process. It was like, okay, so now let's decide what medication, uh, rather than, okay, so there's this and then this, and then, like, I'm so used, you know, we're all used to that, right? In the holistic space, uh, putting three or four or five things in the mix, uh, to, uh, support uh, uh, any challenges that arise. And so I wanted to see what progressive clinicians were out there. I came get, uh, across uh, James's work, Professor Greenblatt, who I have on the show today, and he's a clinical pioneer. He's uh, specifically speaks on childhood ADHD, and that's very much what today's interview uh, leans towards. And I know that there are a lot of parents in our community who are exploring this and navigating this with their kids. Um, but often as I'm coming to realize and, uh, and see, as I talk to more and more people who are especially women experiencing late stage diagnosis, I'm 47 and I finally have <laughs> that um, neurodivergent stamp, uh, which, uh, which I am actually wearing quite proudly so far. And it has had a number of positive mental health effects, uh, and it, both in myself and in the dynamics, uh, and in my ability to relate to people and also my ability to have compassion for myself and for my family to have compassion for me. Um, where, you know, you can often get frustrated if someone just can't do the thing or just doesn't remember the thing or has their head in the clouds when you're trying to tell them something important. It's not that ADHD people don't care. I care so deeply. It sometimes hurts. And so that's been really interesting. Uh, and Dr. Greenblatt's work is fabulous. He was really one of the first people to be advocating for uh, investigating nutritional deficiencies, heavy metals, uh, lithium therapy, and we talk about all of those things as well as how different ADHD can be from one person to the next. And I actually share an example of doing a, uh, a game, playing a game of categories with my family over Christmas, uh, and we break that down, and then he points out that someone with ADHD will also find the very things that I found extremely hard to concentrate around, uh, the very things that those people need to then function. Uh, and so it is a, a very individual journey as I'm, I'm learning and seeing and talking to people uh, and, and an incredibly enriching one when we start to actually work from our strengths instead of the many stories we tell ourselves, uh, those who have ADHD or parents with kids with ADHD who think, why can't I get this right? You know, we tell ourselves such a story of failure. Oh my gosh, it's so heavy. Uh, and I've carried that heaviness my whole life. Why can't I just do the thing? Why do I find myself rushing at the last minute and then making an excuse? And I've had so many horrible conversations with myself, so mean to myself that didn't need to be there if I was 
more understanding of the way my brain worked and starting to work with it uh, and um, and ditch the white lies and excuses and all the things that you build as coping mechanisms uh, in in this kind of space. So it's such a great show today. Whether you have ADHD, you are caring for someone who has ADHD, or you perhaps have someone you're really frustrated by who you're not sure whether they have ADHD or not. Maybe it's your husband or wife, uh, mother, sister, uh, one of the kids you're teaching at school if you're a teacher, who knows. But I really think the more of us that understand this uh, way that a brain uh, is and um, and then, of course, the many ways that that can manifest because it's different from one case to the next and there are some incredible doctors who are starting to look at different parts of the brain that are um, under-functioning, over-functioning, under-stimulated, over-stimulated. There's so many things kicking around uh, as the research starts to explore ADHD more um, because so many people are neurodivergent. And look, by the way, uh, you know, I, I just think, of course, there are different brains um, and it kind of like optimal um, or normal standardized blood tests. There are people who fall outside the groups. Now, with the brain, I don't think falling outside the group is necessarily a bad thing. I think we just need to harness how that brain works and performs and feels great and how the person attached to the brain thrives is the most important thing to do. And, you know, that comes from a lot more acceptance in society of people's differences and different ways of approaching things. So I'll be talking about that on a personal level a little bit more in a social uh, live uh, hopefully to coincide with the release of this show. So you can go check out Instagram and see if I've put it up yet as you listen. Uh, but today I really wanted to support our parent community uh, given um, the ADHD picture in children uh, is often just a protocol to medicate uh, when there are actually quite a few things we can investigate and support either alongside or indeed instead of. And that is everybody's option to explore. And like I said, no judgment. I think you'll love James's no fuss uh, work um, and his wonderful compassion working with families, making sure that parents aren't being too hard on themselves nor on the kids in terms of expectations. And uh, and I thought it was a really therapeutic conversation um, uh, as a parent of uh, a, a kid with suspected ADHD as well. So that we are just about to kick into. And of course, I just want to remind you, we have a wonderful major sponsor who is supporting us with 10% off their brilliant air purifiers and uh, dehumidifiers. It is Oz Climate. Their website is ozclimate.com.au. Uh, and we have uh, some, I mean, the 10% off is fantastic when you're talking about appliances that tend to be a bit more expensive. I noticed they had uh, a pet filter, uh, which I bought recently, a five-stage pet filter one. That was our special addition to our couple of dehumidifiers that we have and the little compact air filter. And the beauty of them joining us again this year for the second year is that you have another year to make the most of that 10% off because these things aren't cheap and uh, sometimes it takes a little while to build up uh, what you need. But um, I, I can't speak highly enough for the pet filter. I've actually took a picture, uh, I took a video of my husband brushing Buddy, our retriever, in molting summer season. And in the sunlight, you can see all the, the hairs flying up into the sky. So much hair. Oh, my gosh. Thank gosh I'm not a neat freak. Um, but, uh, yeah, we were, we were vacuuming every couple of days and that pet filter is getting a workout, let me tell you, just in case uh, you need that. And actually they have a beautiful success story on their reviews on the website of someone who didn't think they would be able to have a pet due to allergies who was actually able to get a hypoallergenic pet um, with success and with the filter and it had actually changed their life because they'd always wanted one. It's just such a lovely story. So if you want to explore the uh, air purifiers or the dehumidifiers, especially if you're listening to this, 
in February when it comes out and uh, you're on the east coast of Australia where it's very humid right now, you always want to keep that indoor air humidity below 60% so that mould doesn't grow. I can't talk about dehumidifiers positively enough, Uh, but most of you would know that by now. Anyway, let's hook into this conversation with Professor James Greenblatt, pioneer in ADHD treatment and support. Enjoy, guys. Good morning, James. How are we doing? Very nice. Thank you. Nice to meet you, Alex. It's wonderful to be here uh, discussing ADHD. Um, And I want to ask first your experience learning about ADHD in med school, studying psychiatry. What do you guys focus on? I think the the training is uh, pretty simple, that it's a you know, biological disorder, and there's one treatment, and it's, you know, stimulants, medications, and particularly as a child psychiatrist, you know, that was our our training, and kids that didn't get better with stimulants, we had medicine number two or three, and very quickly when I, you know, got out of uh, training and started the practice, I realized, one, not everybody got better with stimulants, and two, it was just a Band-Aid. There was no concept of what I may be contributing to um, some of these attentional issues or impulse control issues. So uh, that's when I, you know, kind of went back to my interest is in nutritional medicine and how nutrition affects the brain and ability to sustain focus. Mm, Absolutely. And I've definitely noticed uh, doing different things over the years, uh, especially B6, zinc. Uh, So I was really excited to see that come up in your work. And that was more... um, identified for other reasons, interestingly, but of course, one thing can help lots of things if there's a lack, right? Yeah. I mean, when you think about the brain is, is the most metabolically active organ in the body. I mean, at any time, even though it's only a few pounds, it's, it's utilizing almost a quarter of, of the energy, the, uh, the metabolic energy in the body. So any kind of nutritional deficiencies are going to affect brain function before other kind of physical symptoms. And if you have a tendency to inattention or um, lack of motivation or poor impulse control, it just gets exacerbated when you're not properly nourished. Mm. And so once you're in clinic, you were making those observations that a lot of your patients weren't getting better, uh, some even getting worse. Uh, At what point did you start to research nutrition? You know, I went to medical school interested in nutrition, so it was very easy, so very quickly. So I've been looking at this in, in uh, across all of the psychiatric diagnosis, but particularly ADHD for 30 years now. Yeah. And and some of the material, I used to talk about it um, to public and, and to parents, and we used it in our practice, but I didn't have a lot of research, so it was harder talking to my colleagues. But now everything we're saying from some of these nutritional deficiencies, some of these heavy metals, we, we now have the research to support it. Yeah, which makes a huge difference. And and can I ask your view on the categorization of different types of ADHD? I'm thinking inattentive, combined, hyperfocused, hyperactive, uh, all these labels that um, a diagnosis can come alongside with. Um, do you feel that that is the case in the the study and work you've done over the last 30 years that it's helpful to categorize? And does that then help actually the detective work into what nutritional deficiencies or environmental toxins might be playing a role? Not, not really. I mean, I think that um, for, for the, the DSM-5, our current diagnosis, we kind of put everything in this one ADHD basket. So we eliminated the inattentive and the hyperactive subtypes. But now the, the other subtypes aren't critical in terms of looking at the work that we uh, try to understand nutritional deficiencies. But I, I think you mentioned earlier about suffering in silence. And, and that is, I think, important to just understand because it's more common in women. Uh, I mean, do we just see it all the time? Because a young male with ADHD might have the hyperactivity and the impulsivity. So they're identified in elementary school and, and someone's kind of always worried because there's a problem. But a lot of the women, you know, aren't going to necessarily be behavior problems or hyperactive. 
and there's an internal restlessness and an inattentive and lots of symptoms that affect self-esteem and working up to the potential, but they often get missed. Um, so I think it's important to look at all the subcategories, but it, it doesn't really guide our treatment. Right. And where do you start when working with a patient in nutritional deficiencies? I'm, I'm guessing it's labs and, and you start to have a look from, from that perspective or diet as well, of course. Yeah, I mean, um, you know, in, in the book, a lot of it is based on on laboratory testing, but there are so many things that we can do as as parents without laboratory testing. So uh, like magnesium deficiency is very common. I, I probably see in 80, 90, if not, you know, 100% of our kids with ADHD and, and probably almost as much as our adults. So that's a nutritional deficiency that is both diet related and I believe probably genetics um, that we could recommend without testing. But to determine other micronutrients, does someone need extra zinc, does someone need extra B vitamins, oftentimes testing can really uh, personalize the treatment and, and much more effective. Mm -hmm. uh, and in terms of um, having a look at our child as a parent, uh with deficiencies what what does the magnesium deficiency play out as uh most typically that you see well i mean some of the clinical symptoms are someone who's deficient in magnesium would be common things we see with adhd kids so uh, insomnia poor sleep anxiety irritability and constipation so those four things are kind of hallmarks of a magnesium deficiency also Kids with asthma, um, uh, also an, an allergy is common with our ADHD children and common in magnesium deficiency. So those are kind of the uh, important things. And one of the interesting things that we've found is if the kids that have side effects on the stimulant medications are often deficient in magnesium. And many of those, like the, uh, the chewing and the biting and the irritability, can often go away with magnesium supplementation. Mm -hmm. You mean the chewing and the biting as a side effect or the chewing and the biting as a symptom of ADHD? Uh, both, but mm. it usually as, as a side effect. So some kids get uh, pretty kind of irritable and, um, uh, you know, the insomnia from the medication is not going to help because you just need to take it earlier. It's the wrong medicine. But a lot of um, irritability and anxiety from the medication can be helped by magnesium. And actually ticks, involuntary muscle twitches, is not uncommon in a subset of kids. And those can also be helped by magnesium. Mm -hmm. Wow, huge. And, and so how do we then explore the mind feel of magnesium itself? There are so many different types. There's the L3 innate that's supposedly in the research showing to be better for the brain. Um, but would a complex be a better idea? I know there are types that are really purely for constipation, like the oxide form, uh, you know, we say magnesium, but then that's complicated now, right? Yeah, I think the simplest way and the way we describe it is any form but oxide is probably okay. So this citrate and glycinate and malate, those all will be helpful. And, um, you know, loose stools is the only side effect uh, if you're taking too much but um, magnesium would be a very easy addition and many people will feel better. Yeah. Uh, and that's something we can do without testing, without even going to the doctor, which is really empowering when we start to realize that health doesn't always need to be behind a, a payment wall or a, a wait list. Um, and there are little things we can try from today. Yes, absolutely. Mm. Now you mentioned zinc and zinc, plays swings and roundabouts with copper. Uh, so I wanted to ask you about the relationship there because this is a territory where you probably want to get your labs done with a doctor um, rather than having a play when it comes to metals and minerals. Um, what is the relationship between zinc and copper in ADHD that you see? Sure. We, we have many years of research where um, scientists just looked at uh, zinc levels in kids with ADHD and they were low. And then they added zinc um, to kids with ADHD and they got better. And then they added zinc 
to enhance the stimulant response, and they got better. So zinc has been discussed in the academic community for probably almost 30 years now. What was missed in that earlier research, which we focus on, is the reason why zinc is usually deficient is these children and some adults have actually elevated copper levels. Copper is, you know, in a wa our water pipes, it's in our environment, and it's very easy to get too much copper. So as copper is elevated in, in the body, zinc gets lower and is deficient. So we look for that ratio, elevated copper, to be able to um, support zinc. But based on the earlier research, I think it's completely fine to take, you know, 15, 30 milligrams of zinc that someone might get in a multivitamin um, with ADHD without right. the test. Yeah. Okay, great. And uh, you mentioned heavy metals at the, at the start of our uh, chat. What do we need to look for there and how are they impacting the brain and ADHD symptoms? Sure. We, we look at a, a hair test, a trace mineral hair test, and, and look at everything from cadmium to lead, um, uh, mercury, and, um, and the copper that we um, just mentioned. I think um, lead is just um, still in our environment, and it's still a, a toxin and affecting our young children you know, across the globe. And um, I think that it's... Um, been forgotten. So lead and copper being things that are easily tested and can be treated. Yeah. And treatment for lead is a little bit tougher. How do you go about that in your practice, in your work? Yeah. I mean, depending on, on the levels for some of these kids that have very high levels, we'll need to send them for uh, to pediatricians who do chelation. Um, but if they're mildly elevated, uh, looking at the source, and then using uh, certain nutrients to kind of help uh, bring the lead out, um, vitamin C being uh, particularly helpful. Mm -hmm. And are there any other key nutrients that have been found in the research that that significantly help uh, children and adults with ADHD that you've started to use with great success? Yeah, there are a couple um, classes of, of micronutrients like uh, the omega-3s, the, the fish oils, been very helpful. We use um, uh, the, the trace mineral lithium um, for impulse behavior and overactivity and aggression. And there's a class of uh, phytochemicals called flavanols, polyphenols, call, and uh, the class is oligomeric proencyanidins, just OPCs for short. But these class of chemicals help with attention. So they are uh, what's in grapeseed, and pine bark and green tea. And we've been using those for many, many years. And are there clinical levels? Like, you know, people might buy one of those supplements on iHerb, but what is said as the dosage on the back, I've often noticed if you go to a, an integrative doctor or a, a naturopathic physician, what they're recommending is a lot higher for a clinical dosage for optimization. Yeah, I think we all have to be cautious about buying supplements, you know, um, because one, there's no regulation, certainly in the States, and we don't know what's in it, or is it the dose they uh, said? And two, I've used the term label therapy. You know, some companies, they, there's just a headline from a research scientist that something helps, and it might be a mouse study, or the dose might be very high and then they come up with a supplement they just have the name of the supplement but as you describing not the correct dosaging so i think it's really important that um, uh, individuals understand the dose that's been shown to be helpful mm, absolutely and so obviously we're in a bit of an ultra processed food epidemic there's no other way to say it i mean the amount of ultra processed food in the average uh, families shopping trolley here in Australia, in the UK, in the US, the stats show between 60 and 70% of what's in the average shopping trolley is ultra processed food. The impact of that on uh, a presentation and exacerbation of symptoms in your view? I think, I think it's huge. I mean, we, we understand uh, the role of sugar now 
um, the amount of sugar in the diet and specifically many studies looking at the amount of um, soft drinks, you know, proportionally related to the severity of the symptoms of ADHD. And, and some of the, the soft drinks actually is another cause of low magnesium. So the phosphoric acid in all these soft drinks lower magnesium. And, um, you know, I, I call the ultra processed food these nutritional vacuum cleaners. So it's just kind of just robbing the micronutrients that we have to process these um, refined foods. And that kind of depletes the body. And again, we always come back to genetics. There's usually some genetic vulnerability, not all the time. And it's just all these environmental insults on top of that, you know, vulnerability and micro and ultra processed food is very commonly the important environmental factor that affects attention and impulse control. Yeah. And, and then other environmental factors are, uh, things like lime mold, uh, it, we're gaining huge amounts of awareness on the impact of certain neurotoxic mycotoxins um, uh, based on the types of spores you're finding in your indoor environment, if you have water damage. Has this sort of come into view for psychiatry in more recent times as well? Absolutely, as we understand everything from long COVID to the neuropsychiatric symptoms of, of Lyme and, and mold and, and the role of inflammation in psychiatry. Um, oftentimes, though, that is separated from a diagnosis of ADHD. So, so the brain fog and the inattention that we're seeing, you know, post-viral infections would be, you know, post-situational. Yeah. yeah. And, and not necessarily diagnosed as ADHD. Yeah. Okay. Uh, and, and so... Let's just say people have cut out their ultra-processed food, they've done their labs, they're working with a physician or a naturopath and all of their nutrition seems to be right and they are still experiencing the poor impulse control, can't just sit down and get the basic tasks done, everything has to be super exciting, otherwise it's overwhelming or numbing. Uh, is like, does that happen often once you've addressed all the other things? It, it actually does. I mean, it's mm. really important to point because, again, if we have a genetic vulnerability and, you know, you use the term neurodiversity, that people just approach the world differently. And, and the, in certain environments, the ADHD symptoms are going to be great, right? Where you're passionate and creative and impulsive all for the good of either your company or your life. But if you're sitting in a history classroom and it's boring, it's not great. So I think it's really important. So we help someone's mood, their irritability, their sleeping better, but they're still not able to focus and pay attention and participate in their school. So we have to treat that. And we can treat it with nutrients, nutraceuticals or pharmaceuticals. I have not thrown away my prescription pad. Um, our first choice is looking at um, nutraceuticals. So I mentioned the OPCs that can help improve attention. And there are some herbs like rhodiola can also improve attention after we took care of all these other nutritional deficiencies. Yeah. Fantastic. And, uh, and so you mentioned lithium as well, and that seems to be something that sort of sets alarm bells off for some people. They're thinking of the more, um, uh, like prescription medicine. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Can you talk about the difference there and, and what um, a lithium supplement um, and how it's different, basically? Sure. We, we have a two and a half hour lecture tonight on <laughs> oh, there you go. <laughs> it's probably one of the most important um, interventions that I've used in my practice as a child and adolescent psychiatrist. And uh, nutritional lithium is just that. It's an element in our Earth's crust. It's been around since the Big Bang and the beginning of the Earth, and it's in this, our soil. And um, when we drink water, tap water, and we get a little lithium, and we all need a little lithium for healthy brain function. So that's what we're referring to. And we have many years of research looking at the amount of lithium in our soil, in the water that we drink, affects our mood, affects our risk for suicide, 
and anger and as well as dementia. So lithium has profound effects on, on brain health. So our clinical practice is using microdoses, one to five milligrams of lithium to help children and adults with symptoms of irritability, impulsivity, and uh, anger. And and what do you typically see if you're taking too much? Because, you know, one to five milligrams, these are teeny tiny amounts, right? So you could quite quickly tip over into a person having more than they need. What would that look like? You know, rarely do we have any side effects with nutritional lithium. Certainly if you keep it under that five milligrams, 10 milligrams, um, and, but if somebody took too much of this nutritional supplement, um, you know, they might get a little fatigued and, and feel tired. Someone uh, has said they felt spacey. Occasionally someone might feel a little irritable, but it's not dangerous and you don't need any blood tests and you don't need a doctor prescribe it. It's over the counter in, in most countries. Um, you can get um, lithium over the counter. Yeah. Okay. And trace and- yeah, and so it would just be about pulling back or trying something else because that's not going to work for you. Yes, it's usually cutting down the dose. The one to two milligrams that we recommend usually rarely have ever seen side effect. Mm. And we've talked about supplements a lot. How about the power of whole foods? What are some of your go-tos that you make sure uh, people with ADHD are really hoeing into and making sure they make a core part of their diet? Yeah, I mean, everyone's different. For some of the younger kids, we try to look at food allergies and sometimes dairy uh, is, is a culprit. Um, but for the older kids and the adults, we try as, you know, higher protein diet as, as we can. They just function better. We, uh, there's also genetic research looking at uh, children with ADHD have a higher time regulating their blood sugar. So lots of sweets and, and candies will make it harder for these kids to focus and pay attention. So we're typically looking at, you know, higher protein, lower sugar diets as best as we can, understanding, you know, the real world for many parents. Yeah. And it it seems like a a cruel catch-22, doesn't it? Because the dopamine's in that sweet. And so you chase it because it's the, the, like, excitement that your brain craves, and yet it's the very thing that exacerbates the condition. Absolutely. But there were some early studies looking at adding protein with the sugar, um, minimize some of these um, uh, blood swing changes. Yes. And there's that fabulous uh, nutritionist whose name has just escaped me, uh, the um, glucose goddess. Uh, She shares some fantastic information. She does these graphs about how you eat different things in different combinations and how that then plays out from a blood sugar spike perspective. And it's so wonderful to get that tangible visual. Oh, if I go for a big walk with my ice cream on the Friday night treat that I like to have with my family, that's a significantly lower spike than if I sat on my couch and ate that ice cream. And and I think we actually need to be really realistic with people about sharing those special moments with relatives, having the birthday cake uh, or the pavlova at Christmas or whatever it is. Uh, you know, we don't want to have that um, that all or nothing approach where you're then ashamed if you do eat that thing uh, on that one-off occasion or on the weekend. Uh, I I feel like you would be the type of doctor who would be making sure that shame is coming into the conversation as little as possible so that we have long-term success. Yeah, certainly, um, you know, I see a lot of parents who try too hard you know, mm. limiting screens and limiting food. And, and um, you know, as a child psychiatrist, I'm always advocating for the kids. And, you know, if, if you don't kind of understand what their lives are like outside the home, it becomes really challenging. And many of these kids just end up eating, you know, more sugar than they would want just because they're out of the house and it's been restricted so much. So So balance is really the key. And, and education and, and lifestyle, um, not these dramatic kind of shifts in diet or these rules that are too hard for many of these kids to follow. 
Yeah, and I think ADHD peeps are so good at being uh, telling themselves that they're awful and can't do it and they suck and, there's, you know, we do that fine just all on our own. So to have other people trying to make us feel bad about things as well is uh, is really not helpful. Without the rules, you know, the ideal for me is if, if, if a child is drinking a lot of soft drinks, for them to be aware, if you just educate them, and they understand, well, after they had that 16-ounce Coke, they couldn't get their homework done. They were irritable. Um, and, and then they learn. And, and uh, as you said, our ADHD community have struggled with self-esteem and not living up to their expectations. And they want uh, to you know, improve. And as you give them the tools and the understanding, they will make it happen. Yeah, awareness is so key. Um, yeah, brilliant. And and do you find, especially with teenagers, as you start to need to belong in a more powerful way than seems one needed to in element in uh, primary school, uh, that that can sometimes be a bit of a stumbling block phase where if everyone's at McDonald's getting large cokes. Um, then I, I don't want to be the odd one out. Like how do we navigate that critical time of belonging in teens as they form their peer groups? That must be an interesting time to, to follow families and support kids with ADHD. Yeah, it's, it's very challenging. Um, again, you know, uh, parental understanding awareness is the, the critical factor uh, to help these kids. It's a time that they you know, feel invincible. So I don't need the medicine. I don't need the supplements. Um, sometimes letting them fall is, is part of the process and uh, always being there for support is uh, critically important. We, you know, help parents understand the diagnosis because again, to take away the blame game, if they understand this is a neurobiological phenomenon they, and rewards and punishments and expectations need to be um, uh, personalized for that individual. And no two kids with ADHD are going to be identical either. So we have to understand our family members, our, our friends with ADHD, who they are and how they kind of interact. Mm. Uh, and And so what would you say to parents then? Because so often we, you know, I'm just thinking of like a basic morning routine where, or I told you you had to uh, do the dishwasher, uh, you know, unstack the dishwasher, and that was three hours ago. Why isn't it done? Like, you should we be expecting our ADHD kids to still do these things? Um, no. My question is actually, how do we foster an ability for them to set themselves up for success for these basic tasks? Um, uh, that's that's actually my question because a lot of parents will get frustrated and angry but it's like if the kid didn't do it the last hundred times that you had this same dynamic play out what makes you think that you getting angry this time is going to be the miraculous change that everybody wanted you know and I think that that's where the the understanding and the reframe needs to come in yeah I think um as you described let's say you you gave your child, you know, three things, help with the dishwasher, get your homework done, and don't forget to let the dog out. So you can just assume the kids, most children aren't going to remember all three, because as they're on their way up to the homework, they might see the video game and then get distracted. And they're not doing it to piss you off. It's just where their brain is going. So depending on the age, it might be a piece of paper with a checklist so they can visually see it and then do check it off one at a time. Or you're just letting the child know that this is the, the next step and not feel like that he's a bad individual because he's not going to remember three commands because his brain is interested in, you know, playing with the cat, not letting the dog out. So it's just really the awareness and understanding your child and and help them provide those you know, supports, and they're going to be different for every child. Mm. And I'd imagine the older a child gets uh, before they're diagnosed, the more um, 
well, the difference in the the talking about getting that news, like a, a five-year-old being diagnosed with ADHD is very different to a 15-year-old being diagnosed with it because a five-year-old, you can say, okay, so there's a little thing going on and we're just going to take this and we're just going to change our food a bit and you're in control. But a 15-year-old, um, they're on their way to adulthood. How does... Um, supporting your child through a diagnosis change as they get older and what what are some recommendations that you make to families in terms of the way you then go about discussing how we're going to move forward as a family and how that you're going to help that individual um, with their diagnosis uh, sure and, and again it just comes back to education awareness and I think that um, they're they're 15 year olds that uh, are are going to struggle and fight if you ask them to ch change your diet or eliminate gluten or not eat sugar, and then you lose the battles. So there are times that I'm advocating for the pill because the child is suffering, is not focusing, brilliant, but failing. And I'm trying to tell the parents that at this point, your son does not want to do A, B, and C, but is willing to take a medicine and we need to help him. Um, so it's really trying to advocate for the child. And, and the goal is to improve the symptoms that are impairing aspects of their life, either socially, academically, um, or around the family. And we have many tools to do that. And it can't just be take this vitamin or take this um, medicine. We have to kind of put it all together as well as all the other lifestyle things like exercise and sleep hygiene. Mm. Sleep hygiene is huge, and in the age of screens and blue light everywhere, um, gosh, how do you convince a teen who's uh, video gaming until 10 p.m. that that's all of a sudden not a great idea? <laughs> um, but like uh, everything we're dealing with <laughs> with our teens is, is certainly challenging, uh, absolutely. But, you know, with some rules and some uh, ability to bend the rules and not be rigid, I think is part of the art of, you know, parenting an ADHD kid and uh, listening probably is the most neglected part of that dynamic mm. for many parents because yeah. their expectations overshadow everything. Ah, that's, that's a big one. So the expectations of the parent often overshadows the listening to their child. Absolutely. You, you have an mm. image of, you know, my kid should be able to do A, B, and C and your first child might maybe did A, B, and C, D you know, but Johnny or Sally has ADHD and is not going to be able to do that. And it's really appreciating the strengths and, and the, the, all the things that are positive. Um, it could be the creativity, the passion, the energy, and really emphasizing the positives and minimizing, you know, the things they can't do versus some parents are just very hung up on you know, my child doing X and Y, and those expectations are what kind of uh, assaults the self-esteem and, and is really damaging. Mm. And when you say really damaging, like, let's unpack that. What does that look like over time? Well, as, as you alluded to, thinking that you're stupid, thinking that you're, I uh, can't, you know, not as good as your, your neighbor, your best friend and your sibling, um, and, and likely the individual is as intelligent and has more resources and gifts uh, in the real world, but this is a challenging time at school. So that kind of uh, being told and then internalize it, you know, affects development. Mm. And it, it would affect then your ability to see your brilliance in some of the things when you are interested, right? as well. Yeah, absolutely. And and too many of these kids just give up. I mean, certainly might just give up on school, even though they might have this pocket of genius um, in other areas that like, whether it's being an architect or things that you just don't get in the high school um, or their ability to kind of uh, visualize and uh, things, uh, other interests and passions. So they might give up and, and not continue with school and not, um, think that there's enough out there for them mm. and that's huge so as a parent 
we then have a, a responsibility to help open them up to just how many choices there are in the world outside of school, right? And, like, I, I would imagine it would be uh, that could be a really exciting project to, like, let's find what is going to really excite you and light you up. And and I, I think that's critical. And it's, you know, it's exposing these kids to cooking and theatre and music and anything else and, and letting them uh, be able to make some of these decisions and choices. And it's okay if, if music isn't it, but we, you know, then help them find what, what makes sense. And most of the time, our ADHD kids, when they find what is they're passionate about, that's where they excel. Mm. Yeah. So does it then bring up questions about a, a, an educational system that doesn't allow for all different types of people to find a way to flourish? Uh, absolutely. I mean, mm. uh, you know, our educational systems around the globe are not really geared towards that individuality, that concept of finding out uh, strengths and weaknesses because everyone takes the same test at the same time in the same, you know, 30 minutes. So it is challenging in our traditional academic settings. Mm. And and something um, a, a lot of parents navigate is the cost of getting a diagnosis to then be able to um, either have a traditional um, psychiatric treatment or look at the nutraceuticals as you talked about, but also to get that extra time in an exam room or to have the quiet room to get to do your exam because you actually can't think when there's a million pens scratching on paper all across the room and that, that volume gets turned up in your brain. I know that was me. I actually did an experiment recently with the game categories uh, where you have you roll the letter and it's an F, and then you've got the 12 things that you need to say something starting with an F. And the first round that we played, there was music playing, and I was right next to all my family members, and I got a 3 out of 12. Then I asked my mom if we could just turn the music off because I was finding it distracting. She turned the music off. I got 6 out of 12. Then I thought, I'm just going to go and do mine in the, at the kitchen counter away from the family, and I got 12 out of 12. And, and I think... Um, had I not been diagnosed with ADHD to then kind of start hacking in a much more aware, ooh, so I wonder what is going to work for me and how I can put myself into more situations where I can thrive rather than feel shitty about just not being able to sit down and get it done. Um, it's, it's fascinating to me. And then it makes me think of our poor kids who have ADHD in the school system who aren't being set up to thrive when such simple little tweaks could be made. And yet with a, such an expensive, almost elusive to some diagnosis because of the rigmarole of getting on the wait lists and the expense of seeing a psychiatrist and the expense of doing the cognitive testing, it's simply out of reach for so many people, James. So how do we how do we change that? Because I get that it is because the medication is highly regulated and highly addictive. I get that that's the principle upon which we make this a really tricky thing to get so that we make sure it can't just get, uh, you know, dexamphetamine in the hands of many. But there are so many people falling by the wayside with the the way we go about identifying Yes, yeah, really good. Point. I, I just want to go back to your scattergram and, and the music. Oh, thank you. Because <laughs> sorry, there's a lot to unpack there. Sorry. Yeah, yeah no, it's just a, <laughs> a great example of for you, you mentioned is to have ADHD, that the quiet is where you pay attention better. But there's going to be another child or uh, adult where they're listening to these loud music in their headphones. Mm. That's how they pay attention better. Yeah, And the expectation of the parents, they're saying, get get that headphone off. You have to focus. It's got to be quiet. But it's the absolute opposite. There are kids that have to stand when they do homework. There are kids that rock when they have to do homework. There are kids that do better with music, loud music, that, that might be kind of earth-shattering to you and I. We couldn't <laughs> yeah. anything. But guess yeah. what? They're able to focus and they're going to finish their math problems. So it, that really is just a, and I hear it all the time, very important to understand 
how your child does their best work, listening to them, not having your expectation that it's got to be quiet. You got to be, you know, locked in this office. If they do better in a loud kitchen, you know, or with music blasting in their ear, your goal is only that they're getting their work done and they're understanding the material. Yeah, and helping them find the way to do that, which is where the bio-individual factor comes in. Um, funny story, I um, had done some research on sound therapy and I thought that was fantastic. There was a, a particular frequency that you could play music through that would um, help with all of the sounds of everything coming in at the same volume and trying to absorb too much information, which is absolutely me. I did it. The first time I had this, the music in my ears was great because I didn't know the piece of classical music, but I'm very musical. And the second time it played, I'm humming along with the flute and here comes the cello part and now the timpani are coming because the big dramatic bit's going to happen and I'm singing along with the entire concerto. And then that's terrible for me because I now know the music. So all I want to do is play along with the music. Uh, and, and so... Um, what I love about what you said there, I just want to unpack it a little bit more because I think this is key, is if you're in a parent-child dynamic for ADHD, to really switch the curiosity lights on about helping and together working out to figure out how life is going to work best for you. What are the situations that are going to help you thrive instead of we need to make you thrive in this setting better, which is what everyone's quite tempted to do. Absolutely. It's it's kind of empowering your child with enough confidence uh, to be able to um, make those decisions and choices. And, and our guidance is part of that as parents. Mm. And for the children and adults who do take medication um, because they do find that that does ultimately work better for them, are there ways we can support the human body on stimulants in the long term because if you look at some of the long-term research some one of the ones that concerns me is the leaching of calcium um, and potential osteoporosis later in life like there's some interesting nutritional deficiencies that can come about from being on this medication long term how do you support the body to make sure that those might be mitigated yeah, I think magnesium is actually probably more important than the the calcium. Mm, okay. We tend to get enough calcium in our diets, but um, the stimulants do uh, leach out some magnesium and that exacerbates a lot of the symptoms. Um, so every time we would use a stimulant, we do recommend magnesium and then a, a either multivitamin, but uh, with enough of the B complex. So, um, and zinc, because we know that the stimulants actually do better with magnesium and zinc. So the minimum with someone on a stimulant would be magnesium and a good multivitamin. Mm. And are there tests that one should do uh, on medication? Like, I mean, would you advocate for annual bloods anyway for some of those basic nutrients to make sure that everything's in check? Yeah, we would look at a basic laboratory tests before we start a medicine, make sure somebody's not deficient in iron or have lead, and copper, and then um, certainly monitoring. The other concern on stimulants is decreased appetite and weight loss. So we've seen many kids um, lose too much weight and these stimulants should have been stopped. And I've also seen eating disorders triggered by uh, stimulants for some kids just, uh, again, lost too much weight and um, developed an eating disorder. So you have to really kind of monitor. Yeah, okay, great. And if a family out there is listening to this, obviously they should be having a conversation with their their um, primary caregiver and practitioner who's guiding them through the ADHD and the medication in the first place. But have you helped people come off stimulants and realise they might not need to be on them? And what does that process look like? Well, I mean, stopping the stimulants are much easier than uh, tapering off antidepressants, which we have is a tremendous problem. So stimulants are short-acting medication. They only work for, depending on the preparation, three, six, eight hours. Um, and so as soon as you stop it, the body, you know, the medicine's out of your system. So if you take it in the morning, 
by 11 o'clock at night, it's out. So if you didn't take it for a few days, most individuals would do fine. Now, there are kids that have taken high dose of amphetamines, these stimulants for years and, um, and stopping it, and there's some withdrawal. But it's usually not that difficult. The concern would be you stop it and the symptoms come back. And that's why, you know, I typically, for, for many of these kids, if they don't need it over summer, they don't need it vacations, you know, we don't, we don't encourage the medication. If they do need it, then it's certainly appropriate. But as we kind of fill in these nutritional deficiencies, um, oftentimes, many of these kids can uh, taper off their medications. Okay. And one of the questions I wanted to ask you before we finish up is, how many resources and how many um, uh, theories behind are popping up for ADHD as everybody learns more, as more research is done, people, you know, Gabor Mate is doing work around trauma and um, Johan Hari around connection. He wrote that fabulous book and did the TED Talk. Um, then there are people recommending neurofeedback and having great results on that but it seems not long-term results kind of something that you then need to keep doing quite regularly lots of things are popping up and you would have seen so much development and awareness uh, and so many more tools in the kit over the last 30 years what do you see sticking as everything starts to pop up um you know it's it's great to have a best-selling book but at the same time uh are we really helping people in the long term and do, is there a silver bullet, which I really don't think there is personally. Um, trauma might be at play for someone with a, a, a toxic parent dynamic, but not for the next person and yet very similar symptoms. Mm-hmm. Um, so I guess what I'm asking is with so many different ways to go, so many different things to explore, um, how do we make sure that we're staying curious rather than hanging our hat on something as we explore this for our family, for ourselves, for our child? So I think I, I would say the only silver bullet is this concept of bioindividuality. So if you can kind of appreciate that um, as, as an adult and as a parent and instill that in your child, that that is the silver bullet, which means neurofeedback could be helpful for some, as you said, but not all. Medicine might be needed for some, but not all. You know, we, sleep, exercise can be the key for some individuals, dramatic, but not all. And even yoga or mindfulness has tremendous potential for ADHD, but, but not for all. So if we can kind of embrace that concept of biochemical individuality and uh, that on top of the fact that this is a neurobiological illness, this is not a behavior, is not willful, um, you know, uh, behavior, then I, I think parents and adults with ADHD will be able to kind of achieve whatever they wish. Mm, beautiful. Where can we learn more, Doc? I'm sorry, I didn't hear. <laughs> sorry, where can we learn more? Where can I... Uh, point people now. Uh, I love uh, your book, Finally Focused. Uh, I read it over the holidays and I thought that was um, a fantastic uh, set of tools for people. Uh, but you have so many lectures online and, you know, people can think, oh my gosh, where do I start? I see Dr. Greenblatt's work come up all over the internet. Where is your favorite place to send people? I think the simplest uh, for parents, probably the uh, the website, jamesgreenbladmd.com. So that goes through at least our, the books that we've written for consumers on depression, ADHD, and eating disorder. So jamesgreenbladmd.com. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Doctor. Uh, it's been an absolute pleasure chatting with you, helping families out there explore a, a topic that can bring a lot of strain, uh, especially before uh, diagnosis, but with the right love and support can actually be a really uh, exciting journey as we discover how to help the bio-individual thrive. Great. Very nice talking to you. Take care. 
And that is today's show. Thank you so much for tuning in. A reminder, we have so many fantastic shows in our archives these days. If this particular topic was helpful to you, head over to lowtoxlife.com forward slash podcast and click on the podcast directory, which gives you food, body, home, mind, and environmental health topics segmented so you can see all the shows that we've done in all of those areas and head straight to what you want. A reminder, we also have 10 fabulous e-courses that I've written with various doctors, naturopaths, health professionals, and experts over the years to support you on your low-tox journey, whether it's making daily swaps, getting ready to make babies, looking after your inflammation, you can hit the courses tab on lowtoxlife.com to explore those. And lastly, I would love to meet you on socials. Go and head over to at lowtoxlife on Instagram or find us on Facebook. It's always such a pleasure to chat and see how you guys are going when you share favorite shows and share them with your friends. I absolutely love that. A little reminder, of course, that all of our shows are not intended as medical advice. They are intended to open the minds and hearts of people and maybe help you explore something you hadn't considered yet, but please always check in with your health professional. And one last little request, if you have time to leave us a review wherever you listen to this podcast, that would just mean the world to me because it helps us get out there and have other people have confidence that that thing they're considering pressing play on is absolutely worth it. I'll catch you for the next show you tune into. Thanks for joining me again. This is Alex Stewart, founder of Lotox Life.